Well, this morning, uh, we will be continuing our study of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians by taking a look at chapter 3, verses 12 through 21. And last week, we saw that Paul, at the beginning of chapter 3, wanted to be sure that the believers uh, at the church in Philippi oriented their lives around, uh, oriented their entire lives around what he described as the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. He was concerned with the possible influence of teachers uh, from, the outside the ch- uh, from outside the church community, pressuring his friends into the false belief that the gospel, the good news of salvation, our salvation secured for us by the work of Jesus. He was worried about them pressuring them into the false belief that they needed to add things. They needed to add their own works uh, into the mix and be sure that they were doing things and checking off boxes that really made them part of the community of God. While strongly rejecting the idea that we can somehow add value or effectiveness to Christ's work by bringing our own contributions to the table, Paul offered up his own life as an example and said, look, I've worked hard and and I had everything I wanted and everyone admiring my life, but it wasn't until I was willing to lose it all that I really gained what I really needed, which was a rich relationship with God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. So in verses 1 through 11, Paul made clear this this one boundary or this one guardrail in following Jesus, and that it's it's by grace through faith alone that we are saved. Our works cannot secure our salvation. Only the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus can do that for us. So Paul put up this one boundary, this one guardrail to help guide us in our walk uh, in faith and with Jesus. However, this week in verses 12 through 21, Paul also lays down a second boundary, kind of, kind of on the other side. And he wants us to be sure that we know that although we may not secure our own salvation through our own works, that doesn't mean we get to live our lives kind of however we want to or however we might wish to. Now that we know about this incredible thing that Jesus has done for us and this incredible gift that God has given to us, we should live our lives and display that, that we're aware of this. We should live our lives in gratefulness to what Jesus has done, and that should impact our, our attitude and our character and, and the things that we choose to do. We want to live our lives in such a way that it makes it very obvious the value and the worth that we place on knowing Jesus. If we truly value and love Jesus, we should probably also think about how we can get to know him better and how we can live uh, in a way that helps us continue down the path toward a better relationship with him. And those boundaries that Paul's building helps, helps us stay on the right path and, and keep moving toward that final goal. So the question becomes, how do we do this? How do we move down, move down that path of, of getting to know Jesus better? And that's what Paul explains today in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 21. He offers some practical advice for those who wish to keep moving toward Christ throughout their lives some practical advice for those who wish to keep moving toward Christ throughout their lives. Now, a quick note before we begin, in this passage, Paul gives just some practical advice for how to live the life of faith, but but not everything. This is not a full explanation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Remember that Paul, like all biblical authors, was writing to a specific group of people who were facing a specific set of challenges and needed to hear specific, specific encouragements and teachings. So while these, while these practical pieces of advice, these tips that we read in verses 12 through 21 are indeed good, they are not everything we need to know about what it means to follow Jesus. Some of these things might be uh, what you really need to hear today. You, you, might really, you might hear them, they might penetrate to your heart, you might really feel like, yeah, this is exactly what I need to consider for my life and my faith right now. Other, others of you might, might hear some of these and be like, I'm, not, I'm having trouble connecting with this, or this doesn't feel like where uh, I'm at on, on all four of these, on, on each one of these. 
what I want to let you know is that both of those responses are, are okay, and I absolutely want to invite you this morning to just listen and consider and ask how the Holy Spirit will open your heart and form you according to what God wants you to be aware of and the ways that he wants you to grow right now with where you're at in your relationship with him. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, and we'll look at some of these, some of these ways, some of this practical advice for those who wish to keep moving toward Christ uh, throughout their entire lives. And, uh, and I've broken them down into, into four tips to, to, to make it easier for us to track and, uh, <clears throat> and take a look at. So the first one, tip number one, is commit yourself to getting this one thing right, Jesus is the prize. Tip number one, commit yourself to getting this one thing right, that Jesus is the prize. In verse 12, Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet having, having taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which, Je for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> Now, maybe it was because during this, during this week as I was reading this passage, uh, you know, I noticed that Paul uses a lot of language and a lot, and a lot of terms that were associated with games and with races during his day, and, uh, and commentators kept pointing out that Paul's, the metaphor Paul's using focuses around a lot of what the entertainment or the sport would have been during his time. But all of this week, as I read this passage, I couldn't stop myself from thinking about some of the most tragic and gut-wrenching and embarrassing videos that you can find on the internet. I speak, of course, of the cliffs of athletes who celebrate their victories just a little too soon. There are, unfortunately, dozens of blooper reels of, of runners thrusting triumphant arms into the air only to suddenly find themselves drop from first to second as their unseen competitor puts on one last burst of speed to leave the would-be winner in the dust with the bitter taste of second place. Do we, uh, do we have any Dallas Cowboys fans in the, in the crowd today? Not ready to, okay, we got one for sure. Um, well, the franchise has a long and storied history and, and, and is full of absolutely wonderful and incredible moments, but it also has the unfortunate uh, dishonor, the unfortunate, uh, um, uh, the unfortunate reality of appearing regularly on not top 10 lists thanks to the, a defensive tackle named Leon Lett. During Super Bowl 27, while the Cowboys were soundly beating the Buffalo Bills, Leon Lett recovered a fumble. He recovered a loose ball and sprinted toward the opposite end zone, end zone relishing a chance to uh, enjoy the glory of a scoop and score on the store's biggest stage. Unfortunately, he started showboating a few yards too early and extended the ball out away from his body while outside the end zone. And as, as he reached the ball toward the end zone and was trying to do kind of the Michael Irvin uh, uh, scoring dance, he was surpri surprised by Bill's wide receiver, Don Beebe, who knocked the ball loose and recovered it for his team. Leon Lett lost his chance to score a touchdown because he took his eyes off the goal line, he took his eyes off the prize, and tried to enjoy a little extra glory a little too soon. And in fairness to Leon Lett, he was a perfectly fine defensive tackle, a two-time Pro Bowl or a three-time Super Bowl champion, and Dallas did win this game. So it's not like the worst thing that he could have ever done. It's easy to laugh at such blunders until they happen a little closer to home. K-State, of course, is not without its own celebration-turned-disaster moment, and some of you already know what I'm about to say. It's the dreaded Pasco fiasco. 
Often found on lists like worst mistakes in college basketball history, poor Purvis Pascoe will forever be remembered for a travel that cost the Wildcats an upset victory in the 2003 Big 12 tournament. With a mere 1.8 seconds left in the game, K-State led Colorado by two points. And as the Buffaloes inbounded the ball for what surely would have been a last-second desperation shot, Pascoe brilliantly intercepted the pass, all but securing a Wildcat victory, except for he forgot to look at the clock. And then he forgot to dribble. And instead, in a basketball, you have to dribble if you're going to move. But instead, he tucked the ball underneath his arm and thrust one finger into the air and walked off the court. And of course, the referee blew a whistle, called Pasco for a travel, gave the ball back to Colorado. Colorado uh, inbounded the ball, banked in a three-point goal to take the lead, and Purvis Pasco's name lives on forever in ignoble infamy. In fairness to Purvis, he was also a fine basketball player, a leading scorer and rebound for K-State, and a member of the traveling Big 12 All-Star team, no pun intended. (laughs) All these runners and football players and basketball players have one thing in common. They took their eyes off the real prize they've been working toward and missed crossing the finish line the way they'd hoped to by just this much. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, Paul warns that Christians can do much the same thing if they take their eyes off the prize that is Jesus Christ. Last week, as we read in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, we found that Paul had one true burning desire, one dominating passion in his life, and that was to know Jesus and to value him above anything and anyone else in this world. Paul wanted this so badly that he had cast aside all things that he had worked for that risked keeping him from knowing Jesus the way he wanted to, that risked keeping him away from his goal. He was not about to celebrate or showboat or proclaim himself to be number one before his work was done and the full race of his life toward his Savior was complete. So what did it look like for Paul and what might it look like for us to run this race well and keep Jesus as the true prize of our hearts and our hard work? First, I think it's important to confess along with Paul that we are not yet perfect and that perfection in this life on this side of the kingdom of heaven, at least the way that we would build it for ourselves, really isn't our goal. The prize is Jesus and enjoying his perfection, not our own. Paul had offered his own life as as a testimony, as an example of what it means to follow Jesus and live well. But he didn't want the Philippians to think that he was arguing that he had already arrived at his goal or already attained perfection. In fact, he emphatically denies this notion in verses 12 and 13. For Paul, perfection, this this hope and this goal of a chance to finally become free of sin and be righteous before a holy God, perfection was indeed something he wanted, but it was also something that he wasn't going to get on his own. He wasn't going to create this on his own. That blessing would come to him the same way that it comes to you and me, by committing our lives to moving closer and closer to Jesus and eagerly awaiting the day when he graciously bestows his perfection through the power of the resurrection from the dead on us. The prize that Paul wanted and the prize that we should all desire as well is union with Christ, a beautiful and flourishing and eternal, eternal relationship with our Lord and Savior. The payoff here, and what I certainly hope is good news to you as it has been good news to me, is this. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to make your own perfection. You just need to be persistent. You don't have to be perfect. You just need to be persistent in following after Jesus. You don't have to get every little thing right, but you do need to keep moving forward toward your Savior. 
If you need proof of this, if you need to see that this is true, just look at the Gospels and look at the stories and how Jesus treats the people that, that come to him and seeking him and wanting to get to know him better. Was any one of them perfect? Absolutely not. Levi was a tax collector who had extorted his neighbors for personal gain, but then when he moved closer to Jesus, his heart began to change, and, he, and his desires suddenly changed from hurting people to helping them. A woman, the woman at the well had a complicated and messy and perhaps morally suspicious life, yet Jesus shared the gospel with her and was so taken by, with its promise that she immediately became one of the, one of the Bible's first evangelists. Paul had been actively persecuting the early church, overseeing the execution of Christians, but when Jesus called to him on the Damascus road, it changed his understanding of everything forever. Paul thought that he had been pursuing righteousness by the power of his own works, but after meeting Jesus, he realized that his own works actually didn't have the power that he needed for his salvation. Only Jesus has that, so Paul followed him. To get this one thing right, that Jesus is the prize, you've got to lay aside any misplaced ambition or notion that you are going to be perfect right now. All Jesus is asking you to do is be faithful, not flawless. He'll handle being perfect on our behalf. All he asks of us is to keep moving toward him. This is not an excuse to be sinful. It is rather an invitation to be grateful for the grace and the forgiveness of our God. There is a second helpful hint running through uh, about running the race that we see in this passage that I want to touch on before moving on. And it's that while Paul may not be perfect, he is humble. And healthy humility is a crucial character trait for anyone attempting to follow Jesus. There are two pretty profound statements of humility in these three, pa- in these three verses. First, in verse 12, Paul says, I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Connecting us once again to the point that we were talking about last week in last week's passage, that everything about our relationship with God flows from the grace of God. Paul's entire purpose in this life, the race he runs, the ministry he's committed to, the gospel he preaches, it all begins with and flows from that moment Jesus Christ took hold of him. We believe Christ because Christ reaches out to us. We know God because God sent his son to reveal him to us. We learn to love God only because God first loved us. Our faith is not, is not really our own. It's not something we've built and made for ourselves. It's a beautiful, handcrafted gift from the Lord. The second thing that I, we want to see is it, the, the second act of humility is Paul says that he stretches toward the goal to win the prize by forgetting what is behind and straining forward toward what is ahead. I fear that this is often a a misunderstood or or a misapplied passage. Paul is not saying that he just forgets anything from his past, good or bad, and focuses on the future. He's also not saying that he and other people just need to get over any hardships or trauma that we may have suffered that impacts us today. That is a dangerous and really unhealthy way to try to maintain humility. What has happened in the past shapes our present and our future, and ignoring it often only causes us more pain. Also, we know that Paul didn't forget his own past. He just brought it up in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, and the events of his life both before and after becoming a Christian are frequently discussed throughout all his writings. So what's he really trying to say here by saying forgetting what's behind and straining forward toward what is ahead? 
I think what he wanted to say was that in order to keep Jesus as the true prize, he doesn't, he doesn't dwell on or revel in his apostolic accomplishments or his failures. In the same way that it wouldn't make any sense for a runner to stop in the middle of a race and say, you know, I ran that, really mile, that last mile really, really well, and they should probably just give me a medal just for that section of it. That would, that would be great, so I'll take a break until they do that. In the same way, Paul doesn't say, did y'all see how many people I converted in Jerusalem to, to Christianity? Jesus should definitely give me some credit just for, that, just for that work alone. That's never Paul's attitude. That's never the way he approaches his work or his accomplishments. It's not that Paul isn't aware of the good work that he's done or about the things from his past that, 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 that are not so good. It's that he doesn't use, use it as self-exaltation. He's not going to Leon let himself into a Purvis Pasco style fiasco. I know, right? That was pretty fun. You can laugh. When he remembers the things he has done, he is all, it's always as a way to glorify the Lord and advance the gospel message. Letting go of perfection and taking up humility are two essential practices that we must strive to commit ourselves to, to get this one thing right, that Jesus is the prize. So this week, challenge yourself. What is one unfair expectation of perfection that you can, by the grace of God, allow yourself to let go? What is one unfair expectation of perfection that you can, by the grace of God, allow yourself to let go, trusting that Jesus will maintain it for you? And what is one humble practice you can, you can take on that will help you take one step closer to the prize that is Jesus Christ? What is one humble practice you can take up, that you can take on, that you can make part of your life that will help you in your, in your walk and your relationship with Jesus? Tip number two, find some faithful leaders to follow and then understand that you might be one too. Find some faithful leaders and follow them and realize that you might be one too. In verse 15, Paul says, All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let, uh, <clears throat> only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together and following my example, brothers and sisters, and, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Now, it may seem odd that Paul, who just got done saying he isn't perfect and that everyone's focus should always be on Jesus, then says that he and others like him, disciples and apostles and leaders of the church, are great examples of believers and they should try to follow them and be like them. Why and how exactly are we supposed to keep our eyes on Jesus and keep our eyes on people like Paul who live as we do? To cut right to the chase, I think what Paul's trying to say here is, follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. Follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. He has gone to great lengths to make clear to his readers his devotion to Jesus, in part so that, he, so that they can rest assured that if they try to take on some of the practices and follow some of his commands, they will also be doing things that lead them closer to Jesus because that's the direction that Paul's headed in. They've seen that happen in his life. Paul isn't asking them to imitate him in a, in a mechanical copycat sort of way. Rather, it's more that he has a lot of practice and a lot of experience in keeping Jesus as the prize of his life, and so he offers that to his Christian brothers and sisters as a guide to help them uh, on their journeys toward Jesus. This is the body of Christ at work. We help one another, we help one another work on our Christ-likeness. It's not a bad thing to say, I want to be like so-and-so, as long as you can continue to say, because so-and-so wants to be like Jesus. 
It's not a bad thing to say, I want to be like my mentor. I want to be like my disciple, or the person who disciples me. As long as you, can, as you can also say, because I know that they want to be more like Jesus. This leads us to ask two important questions. Who are you following? This is the first one. Who are you following? And, and I don't mean on Twitter or, or Instagram. Whose example do you follow? Who do you trust and, 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 and trust to help you learn things like how to read the Bible and how to pray? how to confess with a contrite heart, and how to share your testimony. Who are you allowing to influence you and shape your mind and your heart? Who do, you, do, you, do you imitate someone who helps you think and feel and act more like Christ? Or do you model your life after someone who wants you to look more like the products they are pushing, or the brands they are selling, or the perfectly presented versions of themselves that are carefully cultivated for the world to see? Your role models matter. You need to find faithful leaders who keep Jesus as the prize of their lives and shape their character through scripture and prayer and in fellowship with other believers in a believing community. But the second question is also this, who is following you? Who is following you? The flip side of all this is that you may very well be living a life that other people are watching and attempting to imitate. Is that a little frightening? A little humbling? It probably should be. Living as a disciple of Jesus Christ includes the humbling and awesome possibility that you may one day mentor another disciple or another believer. And you might even do it without realizing it. If you have the Holy Spirit living within you, and as a believer you do have the Holy Spirit living within you, then I promise you that people are noting your character and watching how you interact with the world. In this last week, someone may have started to pray because they saw you praying at lunch. Someone may have been kind to a stranger because they saw you be generous to others. Someone may have picked up a Bible for the first time because they overheard you talking about a verse that impacted you that you read during your daily devotion. Someone may have had such a hard week that they lacked the willpower to keep believing for themselves or, or, or believe in God, but they hung on because they've seen your faith and they've seen how it, it's led you through trials and hardships of your own. Someone may have committed their lives to Christ, either, either for the first time or in a deeper way, because for the past few weeks or the past few months or the past few years, you have been patiently and persistently discipling them proving to them by the example of your life and the Savior that you introduced them to that Jesus is worth everything. Find some faithful leaders and follow them, but also remember that you just might be a faithful leader too. Consider who you are following and who is following you. Tip number three is be, be brokenhearted for your enemies. Be brokenhearted for your enemies. Looking at verse 18, Paul says, For, as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies to the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. The other side of this, the, the sad side, the dark side of, of what Paul's telling us about pursuing Christ is that, and, and, and focusing on that Jesus is the prize, is that there will be people that do not do this who deny Christ, who dismiss their need for the gospel, and who invest their lives in earthly things that cannot save them, and in fact will fail to do so if they rely on it. The temptation is to identify such people and reject them as enemies, 
to keep them far away from you and watch as they pursue their prize of eternal self-destruction, of both legalistic and liberal self-satisfaction, and of hollow self-glorification that comes through cheap worldly gains. But look close at verse 18. What is Paul's attitude toward those that he identifies as enemies? How does he describe himself when he thinks about such people? The thought of those who live as enemies to the cross of Christ brings tears to Paul's eyes. He weeps for those who are not saved. His heart breaks for those who are actively opposed to the gospel. Paul loves his enemies. He doesn't sugarcoat the danger they are in, but he also doesn't reject them or preach some kind of superiority to them. Paul is brokenhearted for his enemies, and we should be too. This is a serious and direct application of Jesus' own teachings from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. You have heard it said that love you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. If you want to keep moving toward Jesus through your entire life, then you must keep moving toward your enemies in love as well. And to be clear, it's not enough to just know your enemy. You don't develop a broken heart for your enemies by knowing or identifying them. Anyone can identify an enemy. Anyone can identify somebody who is offensively other from who you are or what you believe. But Christians do something entirely different. We don't just know our enemies. With tears in our eyes, we see them. We reach out to them. We love them as Christ loves them. Part of our formation and our transformation into Christ-likeness happens when we learn to love our enemies. So a question you can ask yourself this week is, do you merely know your enemies or do you love them? Do you reject and push away people who think and act and feel and believe and look different than you? Or do you move toward them with the same kind of love with which Jesus moves toward you? We must love our enemies. The final, uh, the final tip for this morning is embrace your heavenly identity. Embrace your heavenly identity. In verse 20, Paul writes, But our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Here's a little something interesting about the citizens in the city of Philippi. They were really proud of being Philippians, and they were really, really proud of being Roman citizens. The city was established as a a colony of Rome after Mark Antony and Octavian defeated Brutus and Cassius there in 42 BC. And the way Romans often established new colonies was by flooding the population with some of their most loyal citizens, retired army veterans. It was entirely possible that the church in Philippi had a number of folks who were also Roman patriots. Their status as Roman citizens was important to them. It was a major part of their identity. So it is no small thing for Paul to write, our citizenship is in heaven. Especially because the word that Paul uses for citizenship is really better translated our commonwealth or our governing body. Paul is saying that the Philippians' true authority is not Rome, but the kingdom of heaven. Their attitude, character, and even national identity should not be primarily Roman. Instead, their Romanness 
should come second and answer to their Christ-likeness. They are not in this world. They, they are in this world, but not of it. They are living in Rome, but they are now in Christ and are no longer of Rome. We too, as followers of Jesus Christ, are in this world, but not of it. We might be living in the United States of America, but in Christ, we are no longer of it. Our attitude, our character, and even our national identity should not be primarily American. Instead, our American citizenship should come second and answer to our heavenly citizenship. Our authority is Christ and Christ alone. Jesus is the prize, and a life moving toward him embraces his kingship over our citizenship, no matter where it is on this earth we are from. America is an incredible place to live, an incredibly blessed place to live, but it is not heaven. The Constitution of the United States is an incredible document, but it is not the gospel, and it is not the word of God. I'm not trying to be unpatriotic, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I'm trying to make it clear to us what Paul thought was so necessary to make clear to the Philippians. Our citizenship and our authority and our only true home is in heaven under the lordship of our Savior, Jesus Christ. No matter how many fireworks you fired off in celebration of your freedom and independence, which are incredible gifts as American citizens, it cannot compare to the awesome power Christ will unleash on your life and on your body. By the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Do you realize what that's saying? What promise is, is in that verse? Our mortal bodies get transformed into the likeness of our Savior's immortal body. And the power that pulls this off is the same power that gives Jesus sovereignty over the entire universe. It is a mighty remaking of who we are, a transformation of our earthly identities into glorious eternal ones. Take seriously your heavenly identity. Is it the primary governing identity of your life, or is it just another one that occasionally succumbs to a different identity? So there you are, four practical ways to think about moving toward Jesus. Remember that Jesus is the prize. Find, follow, and be faithful leaders. Be brokenhearted for your enemies and embrace your glorious, grace-given heavenly identity as a follower of King Jesus.